0: The same is true when it comes to testing, whether it's chemicals or pharmaceuticals. Animals are not sufficiently predictive of humans with regards to, to toxicity and to uh, and to safety. You can never make uh, an animal that you're that you're testing human relevant enough.
1: Safety for pharmaceutical and chemical products is critical. We need to be able to trust that our medications, foods, cosmetics, and soaps aren't going to harm us or the environment.
2: The science of product testing and toxicology led to massive increases in product safety over the course of the 20th century.
1: Unfortunately, much of that testing was done on animals, which has been a controversial topic for decades.
2: In the 21st century, we may be able to advance past animal testing with the help of computer modeling and advanced cell-based methods.
1: Hi, I'm Karis.
2: And I'm Jesse, and we're the hosts of The Analytical Wavelength, a podcast brought to you by ACB Labs.
1: In this episode, we're going to be talking about the role of chemical predictions in toxicology and product testing.
2: First, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jared Bailey, Director of Science at animal free research uk he's going to explain the scientific argument against animal-based testing so hello today i have jared bailey here with me he is the director of science for animal free research uk and he did his phd in genetics uh, at newcastle university is that correct that is
0: correct yes newcastle
2: okay. in the far north of england Excellent. I, I wasn't aware. My, my uh, geography of, of the UK is actually surprisingly bad. I should probably learn a little <laughs> bit more about that at some point. Well, it's uh,
0: Newcastle seems to be most famous for, for its beer, for Newcastle Brown oh, Ale, okay. uh, which arguably is bigger in North America than it is uh, in England uh, these days. But uh, yeah, it's famous for... For its beer and uh for a pretty bad football team but uh it's a nice place to be
2: <laughs> okay cool. G- glad to hear that okay well thank you so much for, for for joining us uh today uh our first question of course is what is your favorite chemical um i i gave this a little bit of thought and kept coming
0: up with chemicals that probably aren't particularly exciting or are many people's favorite chemicals but uh, i'm gonna go for this one um one of my passions since I've been at school, which, which is quite a long time ago now, is, is skiing. I love the mountains and I, I just love skiing. Uh, so it's actually probably something as simple as paraffin wax. It's something you can put onto your skis and go out and just have a, a fabulous day in the mountains sliding around on the snow. So, uh, so a, a pretty simple answer, but one that's,
2: that's brought me a lot of joy over the years. Yes, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, lots of applications for chemicals in our life. So I want to talk a little bit about your background uh, and kind of how you came into the field of uh, animal-free research. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there?
0: Yes, of course. Um, well, my, my degree was in genetics. My PhD was in virus genetics, which, of course, is, is very topical at the minute with, uh, with COVID. I then spent seven years as a researcher, researching premature birth in humans. Why do, why do women have premature babies? And of course this has yeah, lifelong consequences for, for millions of, of, of children and people every year. So it's a, it's a pretty serious issue. It was during that time um, that I realized that my, my own moral issues with animal experimentation, I didn't think it was right to cause uh, other beings uh, who, who happen not to be human, pain and suffering for science. Uh, That was augmented by a scientific argument. I was realizing that people were using animals to study the same thing I was studying using human tissue and human cell culture. Uh, We were getting different results that, that conflicted with one another, and I started to think maybe this isn't the best thing we could be doing scientifically either. And of course, if it's not the best thing we can be doing scientifically, there are human ethical issues. Because we, we can be doing better things, more human relevant things, more humane things. And if we're not delivering cures and treatments, understanding of human diseases and biology, uh, then there's, a, there's a human ethical angle too. Cut a very long story short, um, I spent one lunchtime in the lab writing to, I think, about 35 different organisations that campaigned uh, on this issue to to try and get a change in how science is done. And for the last 17 years, I've worked for a number of organisations, both in North America and in the UK and and Europe as a whole, underpinning the scientific argument to this, asking scientific questions, "Are, are animals good models for human beings, both in research and in the testing of chemicals for chemical safety and, and new drugs for, for efficacy and safety. I'm publishing lots of papers, book chapters, making the case to, to governments and in, in inquiries, the FDA, the EPA, the European Commission, and, and many, many more. Um, and that's, that's how I got into this. And very briefly, currently with Animal Free Research UK, I started to uh, work with them in, in July last year, so not too long ago. And as well as continuing to to make the scientific case uh, to try and encourage a shift from animal science to human-specific science through, through public affairs programs, through political, political avenues too, uh, we fund a lot of, of human-specific research. We've funded more than £10 million worth of, of science in the UK, more than 260 uh, projects. We, uh, I think the last year, for which figures are available, um, about three quarters of a million pounds were giving to scientists to do human-specific research. Animal-free research and and to educate early career scientists that this is the future of science and to excite them about that and to to get them into that way of thinking, and uh, yeah, just to just to finish off, I I firmly believe as more and more scientists seem to that that we need to maintain a human perspective from start to finish, whether it's in uh, research, disease research, uh, basic research, or whether it's in testing of of chemicals and new drugs for safety. There are too many species differences. Between one species and another, there are many differences in the same species between individuals to worry about, but we need from start to finish to maintain the human's perspective to to do the best science and i i'm I've been convinced of that for a long time now
2: see so, yeah, so let's get right into to that then the the, the meat of it so what would you say? is your argument on, on that because I think that there are many people who have you know opinions on the, the ethics of animal research just from the perspective of, of animal welfare and like mm-hmm. people probably have Made decisions or have thoughts on, on that, but I think that this idea that there's a scientific argument for not using animal models might be new to some people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously for the for the purposes of our discussion. I, I guess it's it's going to be more more interesting uh, for the listeners to hear about testing uh, testing of, of chemicals and drugs. But it's important to remember all the way through that this also applies to research. Are we really understanding, for example? many different types of cancers and how cancers metastasize and spread. Are we really getting to the bottom of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and many, many others? Never mind finding treatments and, and potentially cures for them. I think the answer is no, we're we're really, really not. We've been led down too many dead ends because of the use of animal models that are of poor human relevance. Um, the reason for that poor human relevance comes down to genetics. Uh, We are genetically too different. We, of course, share many of our genes, but even when we share genes between rats, mice, dogs, monkeys, cats, humans, everything else, those genes are expressed differently. They're doing different jobs in different ways. And that really, really, really matters. Those gene expression differences have been linked to all sorts of biological processes and diseases. The same is true when it comes to testing, whether it's chemicals or pharmaceuticals. We need to know how a drug or a chemical is absorbed, distributed around the body, metabolized, excreted, and so on and so forth. And all of those things differ often significantly between different species, even between different individuals of the same species. So the point is that we know that animals are not predictive, uh, sufficiently predictive of humans with regards to, to toxicity and to uh, and to safety. We know why. It's because many of the drugs that are involved in those processes—absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion—that uh, those genes are different, and so you can never make uh, an animal that you're that you're testing uh, a new a new drug or a new chemical on human relevant enough. We really have to maintain a human perspective. Um, so it's, a, it's actually a relatively simple um, principle um, scientifically. And the, there are two things that come from that. One is, should we be using animals at all? Because they're really not, not terribly predictive. And the second thing is, if we don't use animals, what should we be doing instead? and uh, you know we can we can talk about this that there are there are uh, some amazing scientific technologies that that would have seemed like science fiction to me 20 years ago and i was in the lab um that are enabling us to do this research and this testing in a human context and it's much much more predictive for what is going to happen to an actual human being and if you like i can i can tell you about some of the evidence my own work generated to to show that testing new drugs on animals Um, is not adding statistical, evidential weight to the likelihood of toxicity or or safety uh, and, and what that means and where we should go from there.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely want to hear you know more about these these alternatives. You know, it, it's uh, it's something that I imagine that the science has been moving very you know, quickly between you know, advances in the you know, cell culturally methods and then also in silicon methods has been you know, changing a lot recently. So I'd love to hear kind of where things are at and how these compare to animal testing models.
0: Yeah, so so what's happening? Um, I think it's important to say from the outset that uh, you know maybe twenty years ago or so, or, or so this was. I guess, a relatively niche point of view. There weren't too many scientists shouting about this and demanding change. Um, That's really, really changed. And now um, this is is a mainstream issue. It's something that's being discussed and debated, researched, written about, mainstream scientific journals and conferences. Um, There is an appreciation of a need to move to more human-specific research and testing within the regulatory agencies, the the Food and Drug Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency in in Europe, too. The European uh, Parliament recently made a resolution to to phase out animal testing because there was a scientific need uh, to do so. So what do we do instead? What what is giving science and scientists the confidence that uh, we can do this paradigm shift, if you like, and we can move to better science? Um, And I think it it largely pivots around uh, two or three things. Um, One is advanced cell and tissue cultures, um, so-called organoids, the culturing of mini human organs, if you like. They're the size roughly of like a a full stop or a fly's eye. Uh, They're three dimensional. They are composed of many different cell types. In other words, they have real structural and functional physiological relevance to a real human organ. There's organ on a chip and body on a chip technology. So, uh, for those uh, of your listeners who might not know what, what these are, they're very small chips. They're made of, of glass or silicon. The size they used to be the size of a smartphone. They're even smaller now in many instances, and they uh, again they they have these advanced three dimensional cell and tissue cultures, human specific. Uh, with circulatory systems that simulate blood flow. If you're looking at lung tissue, they, they uh, have airflow that, that mimic breathing. Um, if you're looking at, at kind of mini heart cultures, they can they can physically beat. They're really really mimicking what human organs tissues uh, are doing and how they interact with one another. You can factor in uh, the liver and the metabolism of of new drugs and chemicals. So this is. This is really, really exciting. And they're proving their worth in many areas of research, for example, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, that I've already mentioned, and also in the testing of, of new drugs and chemicals. So there have been uh, a couple of papers recently that have, have really demonstrated the superiority of these methods. One of the biggest issues is, is drug induced liver injury or, or, um, or DILI. This, you know, chemicals, uh, and including pharmaceuticals, often uh, if there 's an issue it, they damage the liver that 's where they go that 's where they're metabolized and metabolites damage the liver now that uh, traditionally hasn 't been predicted well by the use of animal tests and experiments have shown that, that these liver on a chip technologies are vastly superior to animal methods and i think uh, I think there was a a paper published recently by a company called emulate that that were one of the pioneers in these organ and on a chip and body-on-a-chip technologies that showed uh, their chips could predict uh, liver toxicity with eighty-seven percent sensitivity and one hundred percent specificity. This is just on another level compared to to what any batch of, uh, of animal tests can do. And finally, this is 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 now feeding into artificial intelligence. Too, there are AI companies that are getting uh, tens of millions of dollars of of investment, venture capital and investment because their technology is so promising. So a lot of these data can feed into into AI and the computers, uh, you know, allied with computers, they can predict even better what real human beings are, are going to do, how they're going to respond to this particular chemical or this particular drug. And one final point, Uh, These kinds of technologies have also been used in repurposing of existing drugs for the battle against COVID with with great, great success. So it seems clearer than ever, uh, objectively and amongst the scientific community and, and increasing numbers, huge numbers of scientists, that this is the future of science and that there's a real need for the benefit of humans, not just the 200 million animals a year used around the world in science, there's a real need for this shift to a more, a more human focus, and everyone's going to benefit from that.
2: Yes, it sounds that way. So, with that, like I think that you kind of were touching specifically on you know, AI as one of these like your know, frontiers of uh, animal-free testing. And I'd be interested to hear you know, what else is is there, you know, on the near horizon of either like what are the challenges that you think might you know, still be out there that need to be conquered, or what are the technologies that are you know maybe not quite ready yet for prime time, but you're excited about to see how it performs.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's important to say that we're, we're really a lot further on than, than many people have previously thought. Uh, you yeah. know, we're already at a point where we can do much, much better than, than animal-based approaches. Another critical point is that we can constantly improve human cell and tissue cultures, organoids, organ and body-on-a-chip technologies, constantly improve computational methods, that's not something you can do with animals. Animals are animals. You can only genetically modify them to be a little bit more human-like to a certain degree. And there's always a huge ethical issue with that. So, um, so we're already in a better place. We're already in a place where the, the, you know, these technologies that can replace animals are hugely advanced and can be improved even further. And there's another thing that feeds into a shift towards human-specific technologies, which is that you can, you can factor in human variation and diversity. And you can do that by taking uh, samples of, of blood or skin, for example, possibly even urine uh, from people uh, and harvesting cells, uh, harvesting cells from those samples coaxing those cells to go back in time to, to something called stem cells. And if, if any of your listeners might not know what they are, there when, when we were developing embryos, we were composed of cells that could turn into any of the specialized cells in our body. They could, lots of the different specialized cells could stem from those cells. You could coax developed cells in adult humans to, to think that they're stem cells again, and then coax them to be any type of cell that you want to, to, to investigate. Now that's important because if you, if you can take cells from healthy individuals, varied healthy individuals, particular patients with particular diseases with specific different kinds of genetic causes, then you can model all of those different human individuals using the technologies I've, I've spoken about. So not only are you being human specific, you're factoring in human variation and specific genetic causes of human diseases that you can compare directly with people who don't have those diseases. So it's a, it's a tremendously exciting time. And uh, yeah, it, yeah I, think, uh, I, I think this is why, when I speak to early career scientists, young undergraduates, um they are arguably more excited about a career in science than than I've ever seen in the last, you know, in the last few decades, and and so they should be.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds also particularly interesting, but the implications are something like personalized medicine of being able to you know, yeah. do you know, specific testing on this and see what how it would you know fare for a particular individual. What about resources for people who want to learn more about this? Because this is obviously, we're doing a, a survey of the field here. I'm sure that you could you know talk more about any one of these technologies or any one of the, these points. So what resources would you recommend for people who want to go deeper into the science of these questions?
0: Yeah, I, I guess it, it stands to reason what I'm going to say. Um, social media is a, is a, is a huge goldmine of information. Many of these biotech companies who are developing these technologies, many scientists and institutions who are using these technologies and generating amazing data. Uh, so, so get on social media, get on their websites and have a look. Have a look at our website animalfreeresearchuk.org. See what sort of science we're funding. See what uh, you know what what research that we're pointing towards that that, that we find is amazing. Have a look on um, scientific repositories like like PubMed. Do PubMed searches. Find out what uh, where organoids and organ-on-a-chip technologies are being used. What sort of data they're generating and how excited scientists are about the data that are coming out of these technologies. So um, so there's a uh, there's all sorts of resources, largely internet-based, but um, you, you, you could spend years looking through the information already, and it's tremendously exciting.
2: And I'm sure that there are people who do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so they yes. spend lots of other time looking through. but th- That'll be uh, great for, for this as an introduction to that. Thank you so much uh, for your time, and uh, it was lovely chatting with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Jared offered a fascinating take on the scientific challenges with animal testing.
2: And it isn't a fringe view. In fact, companies like Unilever have made it clear that they feel animal testing is unnecessary.
1: While not everyone may recognize the name Unilever, you'll certainly recognize some of their brands. Dub Soap, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, and Axe Body Spray, to name a few.
2: Dr. Steve Gutzel is a team leader and computational scientist at Unilever. We talked to him about the role of computational chemistry in product testing.
1: Here with us today is Steve Gutzel, who is a computational science and team leader at Unilever in the UK. Steve worked for 18 years with Unilever, and he received his PhD in organic chemistry from Swansea University. Hello, Steve.
3: Hi, nice to talk to you today.
1: It's great to have you. So let's start today with our usual icebreaker question. What is your favorite chemical?
3: Okay, yeah, I gave this one some some thoughts, and it's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit corporate. Um, but forgive me. So there's a class of surfactants, the alcalocethionates. I've spent a long time in my career working on surfactants, studying their properties. Um, They're a tricky bunch of chemicals, but we've got some really cool models now um, to predict how these molecules interact with biological membranes and and cause toxicity. So the science has really moved on, even uh, within my career. Um, So those alcalocethionates are... a series of chemicals that I've kind of looked at and studied throughout my career and they just happen to be the, the active ingredient in one of our, our leading products, the Dove Bar. It's it's probably one of our oldest products but you know if it's not broken don't fix it, it's a great product. So yeah, Alkylosethylates for me have, have been good fun over the years.
2: So that's, that's really interesting to hear. And I imagine that even this you know, idea of you know, picking compounds just because they're new versus you know whether you're know, going to things that are old and still you know, work is probably something that comes up in your, your work a lot. But let's get into that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into computational toxicology?
3: Sure. So um, my PhD, as you mentioned, um, in, in Swansea, it was actually organic chemistry. So I was placed in the lab. So it was actually part funded by Unilever, and it was linked to... So even from my my postgraduate studies, I was studying how can you link the properties of chemicals to some kind of toxic effect. In this case, it was um, skin sensitization. Will a chemical result in an allergic reaction in people? And the fascinating thing to me that kind of crystallized during my PhD was that all of that information is wrapped up in in the chemical somehow, in the chemical structure. So if you understand enough of the chemistry, and critically, if you understand the biology, the toxicology side as well, you can actually start to relate the two things together. So what I did was I was measuring stuff in the lab. I was measuring um, kinetics, rate constants. So small organic molecules reacting with model um, nucleophiles, so a model of a protein side chain. That's the fundamental step in causing skin allergy. And what I found out was that, yeah, you can, you can fairly easily measure these things in the lab, and it can inform you about the biological properties. So not only could you predict whether something would cause dermatitis, allergy, or not, the really cool thing was by understanding the magnitude, in this case the rate constants, you could do quantitative predictions. And the link to Unilever really came into its own. I came and did um, placements at the, the lab where I am now in um, Southeast of the UK, and the guy that I worked with was a computational chemist. So, like all computational chemists, there's a little streak of arrogance there. And he was like, "Well, you're measuring all this stuff in the lab. That's really difficult. Surely we can do this in the computer." So he taught me how to do some really cool quantum chemical calculations, some semi-empirical calculations, molecular orbital energies, effectively recreating what I'd done in the lab in the computer. Which, had I known that three years earlier, maybe my PhD would have taken a slightly different course. And, but that was that was the hook for me then working out that not only could you measure these things in the lab and relate them but you could then recreate those experiments um, effectively in the computer and build these um predictive models and then it was a kind of bit of serendipity right place right time that particular scientist moved on from unilever creating a vacancy and i thought well why not why not me why not put my cv in and i remember the the hiring manager saying well yeah, this is a computational position. You're not really a computational chemist, but we think you could be. We've invested in you and we want to continue that. So, yeah, it was a combination of things. But um, that real insight gained through my PhD, I think, is what hooked me in.
1: That's great. Um, going into the computational side, from so from my understanding is A core part of that is quantitative structure activity relationships or QSAR. Can you give us a bit of an introduction of how QSAR works in predictive toxicology?
3: Sure. As the the name suggests, what you're trying to do is relate the structure of a molecule to some kind of activity. And in our case, that's biological activity and it's something related to, to toxicology. So really what you need to build a QSAR is is three things. You need a set of chemicals. Um, with measurements of that property that you want to predict. So let's, let's use the, the skin allergy as an example, as I already mentioned it. So what you would need is a set of chemicals that you already know the answer for. You already know whether they're going to be a skin allergen or not. Um, but it could equally be um, a different property. It could be physical chemical properties. It could be environmental properties. Um, anything that you want to predict, something that's already been measured. The second thing that you need is a way to describe your chemicals. Um, and you need to be able to do that in numbers because what you're trying to do is build a predictive model within a computer and computers are all there, to benefits they don't understand chemistry. So you have to introduce the chemicals into a model using numbers. So what we do is we basically translate chemical structures into descriptors. Now they can be from the lab. So I mentioned in my, my previous work, I measured things in the lab, I measured rate constants. An experimental rate constant is a very good descriptor of a chemical in terms of how quickly it reacts with something. But of course, you can calculate these things. And the advantage with the calculations, um, you can calculate many, many more of these. And you can even calculate for chemicals that you don't physically have in the lab. So now it's possible to calculate thousands of descriptors on thousands of chemicals at the touch of a button. So they're your two bits of information that effectively allow you to produce a data matrix. So you have a property that you want to predict and a whole bunch of numbers describing the chemicals. And then you need some maths. You need a statistical method to go look for, for patterns. Because what you're trying to do is show that there's a relationship between some of those properties of the chemical that you either measured or calculated and the property that you want to predict. So do chemical kinetics relate to skin allergy in my case? And the general rule is with the the mathematics to to keep it as simple as as possible. If you can draw a straight line between the points, you're in a really good place. That's often not the case, and you do have to go to more and more sophisticated methods. But Qsows can start from literally um, a simple linear regression to show that your X variable is linearly related to your Y variable. So as reactivity increases, allergy increases, as an example. Or they can be extremely complicated using lots of descriptors and something like neural networks or random forests, more machine learning, AI techniques. Um, And it's important to consider really when you're using these things, what are you using them for? Because it may be perfectly acceptable to have a very complicated model with um, really complicated AI, but if you have to explain the predictions and you need some transparency in that model, that may not be the best, best route. So for example, if you're predicting toxicity, and you're trying to show that you don't need to do a a traditional animal test, for example, those models may not be the best ones. It may be better to scale back and use something far more simple um, that you can actually explain, talk through, rationalise. But if you're in the business of coming up with a new lead um, drug, for example, and you're going to screen tens of thousands of, of structures using more of a black box model that's very, very quick, is absolutely acceptable because you're going to follow that up with subsequent testing.
2: Fascinating. There's a lot to it. Um, but I'm actually really curious about kind of like what this looks like practically from what you're describing. It definitely doesn't sound like people just, you know, walk up to a computer and throw up a structure, press enter and spit on an answer. Let's say that somebody comes with, to you with something like this, like surfactant molecules, like a, a new version or something like this. Like, what does that kind of look like practically for either you or your team to then turn that into uh, the, this passes or this fails, or these are the problems you should be concerned about?
3: So first thing, especially with surfactants, is to to characterise the the heck out of it. Because as I mentioned, (coughs) surfactants particularly, commercial grade surfactants are quite complex mixtures. So they're complicated chemicals and then they're complicated mixtures of individual chemicals. And it really is important to understand that because, for example, if you take the chain length of a surfactant, it can vary from, say, a C8 to a C18 or 20. The properties of those two different ends of the spectrum are very, very different. So understanding the relative proportions of those chain links, for example, will be critical to understanding the properties of that particular surfactant. So that's the first thing is to really understand what it is that you're, you're dealing with and also accepting that it's, there's a bit of variability involved as well. So it's, again, the nature of commercial grade substances versus kind of pure land grade samples, so understanding what the variability will be over the lifetime of the product. Then we would look at its fundamental physical chemical properties, so things like its partition coefficients. Something really simple like the octanol water partition coefficient is a a really good surrogate for lots of things in biology, partitioning into membranes between environmental compartments, those kind of things. surfactants, particularly Octanol water is not the best system. Um, surfactants, by their nature, like to sit on surfaces or interfaces between things, and they will quickly turn a, a practical octanol water experiment into a foaming mess. Um, <laughs> so some of the cool models I mentioned at the start, um, it's now possible to, to measure specifically partitioning between water and a biological membrane. You can do this on um, HPLC columns. It's, it's really neat stuff. You can also do it in the computer. You can model a phospholipid bilayer and the interaction of surfactants with that. And that interaction with membranes is a critical determinant in how the toxicity of surfactants manifests itself in the environment. Surfactants are produced in really large amounts. Generally, during use, they end up going down the drain. And whilst the vast majority of what goes down the drain biodegrades, so effectively gets digested by bugs and even anaerobic degradation, some may end up into the the aquatic environment, and you need to understand whether that's going to have an impact. Understanding how things interact with membranes in aquatic organisms is the fundamental mechanism behind the QSATs. And actually, these membrane water partitioning models are a much better surrogate than the octanol water partition coefficients. So, another thing that we would, would investigate is something called the molecular initiating event. This is a concept of the first thing that a chemical does when it interacts with a biological system that could lead to some toxicology. So for my skin allergy example, it's chemical reactivity. Could it react with a protein side chain? But also you'd look at, could it bind to receptors or interact with enzymes? And these types of models are all very tractable from a a computational chemistry point of view. So we've worked closely actually with some some academic groups, um, Cambridge University in the UK to build a suite We now have models for over 100 um, protein receptors and we can screen new chemicals against those and it gives an early indication of this chemical could bind to this particular receptor which could be linked to these particular toxicological outcomes. So characterize it, study the physical chemical properties and the impacts those could have and then into things directly related to toxicity. So molecular initiating events, or direct predictions of of toxic effects.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, You touched upon this briefly when you are talking about the aquatic toxicity and environmental effects, but we were interested in the role that computational chemistry plays in areas other than what people would normally think about, which I think is human toxicity. So are there other areas and what is the role played there?
3: Yeah, so environmental safety, there's a big role for computational chemistry in there as well both on the exposure side, but also on the effects side. So if you think about risk in terms of toxicity or ecotoxicity, it's a function of two things. It's a function of the hazard. So can the chemical cause a nasty effect, whether that's in humans, an allergy, or or whatever it happens to be, or in an aquatic species, it tends to be more crude measures of, of impact. And the other part of the equation is the exposure. How much of the chemical will the organism in the environment actually be exposed to? And the, the properties of the chemical impact on both of those. So the physical chemical properties impact where a chemical will end up in the environment. Will it partition to the air? Stay in the water? Could it biodegrade? All of these things happen, have an impact. And in terms of the effects, the hazards, Hughes hours for predicting toxicity to aquatic species were actually some of the first to be developed. They've got a history of around 100 years, and the US EPA in particular have been big advocates of the use of QSAR to predict, for example,
2: fish toxicity. So a
3: huge role for computational chemistry in the environment.
2: Now, regulatory requirements obviously play a really big role in how all of this uh, works, how toxicology is is studied and assessed. Um, How have you seen uh, changes on the regulatory side affect your work throughout the time that you've been working at Unilever? You've been there for now 18 years, so I imagine there's been some regulatory changes over that time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So some regimes are very progressive and lead the way. So... People like the US EPA, uh, Health Canada, Environment and Climate Change Canada are very early adopters of computational methods and indeed they're developers of these methods. A lot of the ours um, for fish toxicity that I've mentioned originated from the US EPA. Other regimes are willing to talk and they are willing to, to change. So we um, as Unilever, we actively go out and advocate for these changes moving away from animal testing to alternatives and if you take somewhere like China where the regulations can be quite strict the Chinese regulators are actually willing to talk to industry to learn and to adapt which is really refreshing and then at the other end of the spectrum there are some regulators who are a little bit stuck in the dark ages there have been changes but it's really variable depending on the the geography and the, the sector
1: yeah, so you touched upon Unilever's advocacy in the area of moving away from animal testing. Can you explain a bit more what your company's position is on that?
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's really simple. Um, we believe that there are alternative, better ways of ensuring that people and the environment are safe from the use of chemicals without using lots and lots of, of animal tests. The science has moved on a, a huge amount, so not just the chemistry and the computational methods, but the in vitro world, the systems biology, the machine learning. It's all so much further on than it was when I started and it continues to evolve. And this is why as Unilever, we go out and we share our science, we publish and we present our results all of the time. We also collaborate with lots of different groups around the world to try to advance the science. So that's essentially wherever the best science is, is happening. So academics, industry, NGOs and regulators. In the past, we've seen that regulations traditionally have lagged behind the latest science. So scientific developments may be that you can do something in a new way and it takes a number of years for the regulations to catch up. But we feel that trend has got to to stop. And together with our collaborators, we're really on a mission to make that happen. So rather than just complying with requests for the new animal test data, we're pushing back And we're pushing the alternatives to force the discussion directly with the regulators where we believe that that is scientifically the right thing to do.
2: Well, it's very admirable for for you folks to be uh, pushing for that. And I'm very interested to hear how those uh, affect things over time. But thank you so much for your time with us today. Steve, it's been uh, lovely chatting with you.
3: Excellent. Thanks very much for the, the invitation. It was great talking with you.
1: Yes, thank you. Great talking. It's exciting to hear about all the progress in this field. These tools are only getting stronger, which means better predictions.
2: If you want to learn more about computational chemistry software, check out the Percepta platform from ACD Labs. We'll leave a link in our show notes.
1: That's all for this episode. In our next episode, we'll hear the case for CASE, computer-assisted structure elucidation.
2: Remember to subscribe to the Analytical Wavelength so you never miss an episode.
1: analytical wavelength is brought to you by acd labs we create software to help scientists make the most of their analytical data by predicting molecular properties and by organizing and analyzing their experimental results to learn more please visit us at www.acdlabs.com